press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Wednesday, August 17. Extraordinary and unprecedented, or prudent and responsible. Those are the battle lines as politicians go to war over Scott Morrison's decision to secretly appoint himself to five cabinet positions during the pandemic. The former PM says he was ensuring the government was prepared if a minister suddenly died of COVID. Anthony Albanese says Morrison took his self-described bulldozer tendencies to an outrageous next level. Turns out he was the world's first stealth bulldozer, operating in secret, keeping the operations of the government from the Australian people themselves, a misleading of parliament as to who was holding what portfolios and who was responsible. Later in the episode, our political guru, Paul Kelly, joins me. He says in five decades covering federal parliament, he's never heard anything like it. A hint of relief from relentless interest rate rises, with minutes from the Reserve Bank Board revealing the bank's language is softening. The bank is still deeply worried about inflation, but analysts say it appears open to slowing or even pausing the rate rises in the months ahead. And 200-year-old treasures from a shipwreck at the bottom of the sea have been seized by Australian police and are finally to be returned to Indonesia. The porcelain artefacts were retrieved by treasure hunters and put up for sale online. We'll have more on that story later in the episode. In just a moment, Paul Kelly's seen it all in five decades covering politics, but he's blown away by the latest revelations about Scott Morrison. A political storm has blown up over the revelation Scott Morrison had himself signed in to five ministerial portfolios during the COVID-19 pandemic. The former Prime Minister's issued a long statement in which he apologises for his actions but says they were justified at the time. I'm joined now by The Australian's editor-at-large, Paul Kelly. Paul, what's your response to that explanation by Scott Morrison? We've never seen an event like this, ever. Anthony Albanese calls it an extraordinary and unprecedented trashing of our democracy by the former Morrison government. The former government, Scott Morrison and others who were involved in this, deliberately undermined those checks and balances that are so important and essential for our democracy. Anthony Albanese is going to use this issue to try and destroy Scott Morrison's reputation and do damage to the Liberal Party that lasts for years. Now, the problem for Scott Morrison is the secrecy and deception and lack of transparency involved. We know that in political crises, secrecy is often the real curse, the real demon, and that's certainly the truth here. Because what essentially happened here is that Scott Morrison got himself sworn into five separate portfolios in addition to being Prime Minister, but did it deceiving the public, deceiving the Parliament and deceiving most of the ministers involved. And he now finds himself under attack from the Albanese Labor government on the one hand, but under criticism from his own side of politics on the other, because they're amazed, dismayed 
and bewildered that they knew nothing about this activity of the former Prime Minister. So he's being wedged both ways. Paul, it started with the revelation in The Weekend Australian that Scott Morrison had had himself sworn into the health and then the finance portfolios right in the early days of the pandemic. Do you think there was a justification for those? Of course, it was possible that a minister might have dropped dead at any moment. I think this is a really critical question. And it seems to me, from what we know so far, that the initial decision to swear in Scott Morrison into the health portfolio in addition to Greg Hunt, was in fact a fully justified and fully prudent and accountable decision based on very considered legal advice from the then Attorney-General Christian Porter in collaboration with the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, who believed this was the desirable and best course of action. And all this follows from the Biosecurity Act. The Biosecurity Act is just at the core of this entire dispute. And this act contains draconian provisions, which will enable the health minister to basically become virtually an Australian dictator in terms of assuming all sorts of war powers. And the government decided that it was not advisable just to have one minister exercising these powers, but it should be held jointly between Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison I think from what we know so far, it seems to me that was a sound decision. The problem is that it wasn't properly communicated. So it's just extraordinary. I mean, Josh Frydenberg was treasurer of the country and didn't know that Scott Morrison was also treasurer for the previous 12 months before the election. And Scott Morrison didn't tell Matthias Cormann that Morrison had also been sworn in as the finance minister, or or Karen Andrews, that Morrison had been sworn in as home affairs minister. I think individually and collectively, it was not the right thing to do in secrecy. There may well have been very good reasons for him to do that. That should have been disclosed prior to, or at least at the time, that the swearing-in took place. Paul, many things in Australia's system of government are really just conventions. They're not necessarily written down anywhere. One of those is that we have a cabinet system of government where the cabinet is supposed to be a room full of equals and the prime minister is first among equals. So how do Morrison's actions interact with that? The fact that this is really a conventional understanding of what ministers do and it's not necessarily a breach of any law. There's no law that says the Prime Minister can't take on another portfolio. Well, again, a very good question. I think there are a couple of things we need to look at here. This is early days at the moment, but I think the Biosecurity Act needs to be reviewed. That was the act which triggered this entire process. Secondly, I think it's unacceptable to have a situation where a minister is being sworn in without some public acknowledgement of this. The amassing of power by a leader is, of course, something that dictators do, Paul. I don't think anyone would suggest or think that Scott Morrison was attempting some kind of coup d'etat or trying to overthrow his own government or take control. So what was it all about? What was his real motivation, do you think? The country was facing a pandemic, a pandemic in which the early advice was that tens of thousands of people were likely to die, We know that radical decisions were being taken, eventually that saw 
borders in this country being closed. We saw uh, cities being put into lockdown. So it was a situation in which radical and unprecedented decisions were being taken. I think this mindset is really important here. Now, what Morrison wanted to do was, Morrison, I think, swore himself into all these five portfolios because he wanted to be ready in case emergency decisions had to be taken. That, I think, is the heart of his justification. Now, of course, emergency decisions didn't have to be taken at the end of the day. And as I said, I think the problem was the lack of transparency, the lack of announcement, the sense of deception involved. I cannot conceive of the mindset that has created this. I cannot conceive of the way that the government has functioned that have led to a point whereby someone says, I'm the Prime Minister of Australia, I'd also like to be in charge of health, finance, treasury, industry, science, home affairs, resources. I I cannot conceive of how that occurs. Paul Kelly is The Australian's editor-at-large. Coming up, the front's Kristen Amiot gets to the bottom of a shipwreck treasure trove's long journey home. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. In 1822, a Chinese cargo ship called the Tek Sing sank off the coast of Sumatra. It's become known as the Titanic of the East and was carrying massive cargo and around 1,500 people on its fateful voyage. Then, in 2019, porcelain artefacts taken from the 200-year-old shipwreck appeared for sale online. They were being advertised by a private seller in Perth. Ben Packham is a foreign affairs and defence correspondent with The Australian and joins me now. Ben, we're dealing with genuine treasure here. Tell me what we know about this trove of porcelain. Uh, Yeah, this is a fantastic story, I think, of lost treasure and professional treasure hunters. What's happened here is the AFP in 2019 received a tip from the Federal Office of the Arts about some interesting porcelain artefacts that have been advertised online. So police have got a tip about some interesting porcelain artefacts that the Federal Office of the Arts believes belong to the Texing and could belong to Indonesia. And so the AFP's Interpol Bureau and WA Police have investigated. And it turns out that, yes, indeed, it is true that these cups, bowls, saucers, spoons and ceramic bottles were from the wreck of the Texing. They'd been underwater for some 200 years but because they'd been packed so tightly, they actually came up in very good condition 
condition from the bottom of the sea. Now, a slight sort of interesting twist of this story is the Texing was originally discovered in 1999 by Michael Hatcher, British marine explorer, who salvaged about 350,000 pieces of porcelain from the wreck. But these items that have been recovered from Western Australia were not among those items that were salvaged by Peter Hatcher. In fact, someone, and the AFP is not saying who, has subsequently gone back to the wreck and done their own salvage operation. And these 333 items that have been recovered are from a subsequent salvage mission undertaken by it's possible by the individual who they've been recovered from, but it's also possible that that person got them from someone else. Now, no one is being charged over this because whoever had them was unable to prove their ownership, but it wasn't thought that they could be prosecuted for a crime. As you say, the Interpol Bureau of the AFP has been collaborating with the WA police on this. An investigation has been done. So what happens to this collection now? This is quite a good news story and certainly good for Indonesia because the Arts Minister, Tony Burke, will on Wednesday hand over six of the artefacts to Indonesia's ambassador in Canberra at a ceremony which also coincides with Indonesian Independence Day. They'll be the first of this whole trove which will be returned to Indonesia and they'll be put on display. Repatriation is still a reasonably new practice for many museums around the world, but in this case, we're dealing with artefacts that were obtained and were attempting to be sold privately. So should we expect to see more of these stories in future or is this more of a one-off situation? No, it's certainly not a one-off. We have seen recently cultural artefacts being returned to India in particular. This is the third return of items to Indonesia under this law. As Tony Burke says, the Arts Minister, the Australian government has firm views about this. This has been done to Australians. We want these objects back. And so where Australia is holding objects that we should not have, then we will assist with their return to their rightful sort of place of origin where they can be enjoyed as part of that country's cultural heritage. Ben Packham is a foreign affairs defence and correspondent with The Australian. He was speaking to the front's Kristen Amiot. China's hunger for Australian iron ore may finally be running out as it deals with yet another wave of COVID. That's the prediction from BHP boss Mike Henry. But he's not worried. The Australian miner has just delivered a vast $44 billion annual profit. That story, plus the rest of the nation's best news, business, culture and sport, is available right now at theaustralian.com.au. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.